This is Monday Morning QB, August 22nd, 2022. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, the rapid spread of monkeypox and the FBI raids a socialist group. Plus, a Filipino activist faces payback from his political rivals and a civil rights oral history. All that, and we're asking for your financial support this morning. Visit WPFWDC.org and become a monthly sustainer of this Jazz and Justice radio station. That's WPFWDC.org. No contribution is too small. No contribution is too large. Stay with us. The first human case of monkeypox was recorded in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1970. Now the disease that was detected in humans more than 50 years ago has circulated to 90 countries. Experts say it may have been preventable if research and resources were allocated earlier. Recently, scientists developed a vaccine, but high-income countries are prioritized while the continent of Africa still does not have a single dose of the vaccine. The variant of monkeypox spreading in Europe and North America has a lower fatality rate than the one circulating in Africa. The continent, where people have mostly been sickened after contact with infected wild animals, such as rodents and squirrels, has had at least 100 suspected deaths from monkeypox this year while other countries that didn't see many monkeypox cases before the outbreak have reported a handful of deaths. Here's more from reporter Asia Beckham. Last week, Harvard Global Health Institute hosted a panel of three global health experts who identified challenges and suggested actions that global health agencies can take to improve the response and surveillance of monkeypox in Africa. Monkeypox is a viral zoonosis disease, meaning a virus transmitted to humans from animals. Monkeypox infection causes lesions to develop on the skin and symptoms including fever, headache, and swollen lymph nodes. Higher income countries are receiving testing tools and vaccines. Public health officials say the continent of Africa, who first experienced the outbreak 50 years ago, still doesn't have access to a single dose of the vaccine and lacks the tools it needs to effectively respond and contain the spread of the disease. Here are some opening remarks from Ingrid Katz, Associate Faculty Director at Harvard Global Health Institute. My name is Ingrid Katz, and I'm the Associate Faculty Director at the Harvard Global Health Institute. More than 32,000 cases of monkeypox virus have now been identified across nearly 90 countries. Vaccines and treatments are being rolled out by health agencies around the world, most of which are responding to the significant monkeypox outbreak within their own country. Once again, We are seeing African countries that have been managing monkeypox outbreaks for more than 50 years being left behind. With decisions on resource allocation for testing and treatment being made and prioritized for high-income countries in Europe and North America. Additionally, the early outbreak response has bared a striking resemblance to the early HIV response. We've seen the use of harmful and stigmatizing language, widespread circulation of images of African bodies with rashes and the conflation of sexuality and monkeypox infection. In the 1970s, monkeypox was first identified in a nine-month-old boy in the Democratic Republic of Congo, also known as DRC, where smallpox had been eliminated in 1968. The highest case count of monkeypox in Africa was reported by the DRC. Though lacking test kits, it reported 163 cases of monkeypox and zero deaths since the start of 2020. Nigeria has reported 157 cases and four deaths. Ghana, 43 cases and one death. Other African countries have reported cases including Benin, Cameroon, the Central African Republic, Gambon, Côte d'Ivoire, Liberia, Morocco, the Republic of Congo, and Sudan, 
in no respective order. However, because the continent lacks adequate testing kits, the reported case counts may be low, considering that just north of Morocco, Spain has reported 5,792 cases and two deaths since the start of 2022. On the virtual panel, the General Director of the Democratic Republic of Congo National Institute of Biomedical Research, Jean-Jacques Mwembe Tamfum, dialed in from the country to speak about the need to discover the source of the disease to end the spread for good. I am proud to share with you my experience on monkeypox from DRC. What we need is rapid test uh, because most of the cases occur in the remote areas. We, we observe that uh, rodents and non-human primates are in fact the victim of the disease and not the reservoir of the virus. So we have to look for the reservoir of the virus in nature. Mwembe adds that when cases were initially reported in the DRC, monkeypox was a neglected disease because it was without a specific drug or vaccine. Only palliative treatment was used. Now, looking ahead 50 years later, Africa still doesn't have a vaccine. There is a clinical trail underway in Congo for a vaccine called Genios that's under emergency use authorization only. Ahmad Ogwell, the director of Africa's Center for Disease Control and Prevention, reported earlier this month. Mwembe admits that the DRC doesn't have the tools or transportation to access communities that are most marginalized. And for epidemiological surveillance, the DRC system is very weak. In addition, multiple outbreaks occur in remote areas, difficult to access. Uh, in addition, we have also, uh, most of the time, shortage of sample collecting kits. We have logistic problem for storage and transportation of sample to the National Public Health Laboratory located in Kinshasa. It is why it is uh, difficult to, to decide what is the real magnitude of the transmissibility of monkeypox in DRC. When I, when I remember what happened with um, COVID, African countries were the, the last to have the vaccine. So, um, unfortunately, the disease was not so severe in Africa. So we survived. Otherwise, it has been a very, very big problem because all the vaccine was for Europe and, uh, and America, and Africa was neglected. And we need vaccine, and we here at uh, my institute, we are ready to conduct clinical trial with the new vaccine uh, we have now, mainly the Jonas uh, vaccine, Atom 20. Atom thousand vaccine and also the LC sixteen M eight vaccine. So it is very important for us to have the same level uh, as in uh, Europe and uh, America. So the equity in sharing vaccine is very important. It is a very important message we have to give in this uh, webinar. Are you getting any indication that you're going to have access to those three different uh, vaccines to conduct the clinical trial? Um, for the moment, I have no uh, no indication, but I think it will be so because uh, WHO is working in this uh, direction, and I think it will be okay. Another voice on the panel, Bokuma Kabisan. Tanji, a Cameroonian-born physician, scientist, and assistant professor of medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, 
expressed concern about the different responses when the disease spread throughout North America and Europe in comparison to Africa. Just um, following up on what Professor Moyembe has so clearly laid out, we have now seen uh, monkeypox, a disease that we have known has been in existence and circulating primarily in Western Central African countries for over 50 years, shifting to be essentially a, a global public health emergency. And in that shift, what I have also observed is a shift in the urgency in how we are responding uh, to monkeypox. One can almost say that monkeypox in Europe and in North America is being treated like a completely different disease compared to how it's been treated in Africa over the past 52 years that we have known um, that this was a virus that was capable of causing human disease and also rapidly spreading in, in increasing proportions and causing bigger outbreaks through the years. On July 23rd, the WHO declared a public health emergency of an international concern pertaining to the monkeypox outbreak that has now spread to affect almost 90 countries. But essentially what we have seen in the almost one month period since that declaration is that it seems like monkeypox is a public health emergency in Europe and in North America. Relegating countries that have had to contend with these outbreaks through the years essentially to a footnote. We have uh, heard from Professor Muyembe the multiple um, barriers in terms of adequately responding to the monkeypox outbreak. Barriers in terms of resources to surveillance, in terms of access to treatment, which is still palliative and supportive in uh, parts of Africa. And also barriers in terms of diagnostics to even define the magnitude of the problem. If we do not define the magnitude of the problem, how then can we prioritize and adequately allocate resources to where they need to go? And we know that right now there are communities, primarily of MSM, who are disproportionately impacted in the current outbreak. And as we think about the response, we must also think about how we address research around new modes of transmission particularly when you consider the fragility that some of these communities face in countries where LGBTQ folks are criminalized. Thank you. Outside of Africa, 98% of cases are in men who have sex with men. However, some global and African public health professionals are concerned about the conflation of sexuality and monkeypox infection, while others question if data and analysis about monkeypox transmission in Africa will be accurate because of the stigma of homosexuality in some African countries. During a monkeypox briefing organized by the World Health Organization's regional office in Africa, Dr. Otem Patrick Ramadan said in a quote, currently 60% of the cases that we have of the 350, 60% are in men, 40% are in women, referring to the then total number of cases on the continent since 2022. Anyone can contract the virus through prolonged close contact or particle items such as bedding or towels. Also, transmission may occur from eating inadequately cooked meat or other animal products of infected animals. In Africa, people have mostly been sickened after contact with infected wild animals like rodents and squirrels. As the spread continues, the continent of 1.3 billion people await relief via a vaccine, 50 years and counting. This is Asia Beckham on Monday Morning QB on WPFW Radio. Hey, this is Latrice Vincent, co-host and producer for Voices with Vision, which airs every Tuesday at 9 a.m. The misleadership of the world keeps the people under their thumb by bombarding us with half-truths, misinformation, and straight-up lies, and by blocking media space for the rest of us. But their greatest weakness is the lies they tell, and the greatest strength of the people is the truth, which is on our side. It is often said that one truth can crush a thousand lies. There is no better reason than that 
for you to support WPFW, a people-centered, truth-telling media that keeps you engaged, informed, and interconnected. Support WPFW today by going to wpfwdc.org slash donate. That's wpfwdc.org forward slash donate. WPFW, building a better world one broadcast at a time. This is Monday Morning QB. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. The FBI search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort captured headlines last week, but a lesser-known FBI raid was conducted just a couple weeks earlier, this time targeting the opposite side of the political spectrum. On the morning of Friday, July 29th, FBI teams raided homes and offices associated with the African People's Socialist Party and the related Uhuru movement, in St. Louis and elsewhere, seizing documents and electronics. Later that day, an indictment out of Tampa, Florida was unsealed, accusing a Russian national of using the party and other groups to, quote, cause dissension in the United States, end quote. That man, Alexander Viktorovich Ionov, allegedly used a Kremlin-funded organization to direct agitational political activities in the U.S., But the party, since the very morning of the raid, has vehemently denied the insinuation that it is co-opted or directed by Russian forces. Instead, party leaders point to decades of a consistent political line and impactful local community organizing efforts to reject the claim of foreign manipulation. Omali Yeshatela is chairman of the African People's Socialist Party and leader of the international Uhuru movement. He spoke to WPFW to push back against the accusations of Russian interference and to describe the harrowing raid on that morning of July 29th. My home was attacked uh, by the FBI. My wife and I were sitting around uh, the table planning uh, the day, and this loud voice comes out on a loud system commanding the residents of my home to come out with our hands up and nothing in our hands. I left the the home first, going downstairs, asking my wife to uh, stay in place long enough to try to make calls and let them know uh, that we were being raided. And uh, then suddenly uh, these uh, booming uh, uh, flashbang grenades uh, began to explode all around the house. I was later to learn that they had actually penetrated the back of the house uh, and had detonated the flashbang grenades uh, and the stairwell in the back of the house as well. So I went downstairs, and when I uh, exited the front door at the bottom of the stairs, uh, uh, there was an armored vehicle in front of my house. There were uh, several camouflage-wearing, flak-jacketed men and women with automatic weapons, and and they were bouncing uh, laser beam uh, targeting devices off my chest. And so it was uh, clear that uh, there was an intent to kill me. And my wife followed behind me, and as she op- as I had opened the door, and a drone uh, uh, went over my head and almost hit her in the face, uh, uh, going upstairs uh, in the house. I was ordered to come out with my hands up. I had my hands up uh, following the voice. There were bright lights everywhere. There were uh, these stormtroopers that uh, in the front of the house, they had occupied the the porch uh, on the house next to mine. And uh, when I, I reached the this designation where the person was giving the, these commands to move in the direction, I was handcuffed uh, or uh, zip-tied behind my back. My wife, when she uh, came downstairs, had handcuffs placed on her. Uh, they wanted us to sit on the curb, which we didn't do. Then they said, well, you can sit uh, in the car, uh, which we said was ridiculous while we even having to sit any place. We want to leave. Why are we um, being uh, handcuffed? And they said we were being handcuffed for our security and their security. And at the time I'm having this discussion, flashbang grenades are still going off. When I asked them, what is this about? They said that some uh, kind of indictment was going to be dropped in Tampa, Florida, later that morning uh, uh, of a Russian national. And that my name uh, was associated with the Russian national 
uh, and that they had a search warrant to go into my house. I asked to see the search warrant that they never showed me. Uh, they said that uh, someone else had it uh, 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 down the way. And so just the struggling with them, eventually uh, forcing them to say that I was not under arrest, that I was not being uh, uh, detained, and then uh, pushing them uh, further so that they gave uh, gave us the keys to our cars and we were able to drive away. Uh, and in the meantime, they're occupying our homes. They, they've taken uh, my cell phone. They wanted my permission to open the cell phones if, with the promise that if you open it, then you can get your phone back much earlier than not. Uh, uh, and this is, you know, like a, kind of what the treatment was. I know the history of the African People's Socialist Party is a long and a rich one. I, I think uh, you guys turned 50 years old in May. Can you provide a brief synopsis of the party's community organizing work and its political goals in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think that's extremely important because our objective is now, always has been, uh, that the total liberation of African people. Uh, that's the, on the continent of Africa, that's in the United States and globally. We exist as an organization that's in the United States and various various cities and states and regions. We exist in the Caribbean. Uh, when I say exist, we actually have uh, political organizations on the ground there uh, in various uh, areas of Africa and in Europe. Uh, we are physically on the ground, and our objective is particularly target at winning the African working class uh, into uh, 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 organization and, and ideological and political uh, <clears throat> activity to change our circumstances in the world as a part of the process of negating the colonial authority that's imposed on us by the United States government and by other governments that exploit uh, our communities and exploit our people and maintain uh, the system of colonial uh, c- uh, capitalism that has existed since Africa first came under assault. Uh, that assault that's responsible for my being in St. Louis and for there being uh, party members in the Caribbean and various other places uh, throughout the world. So that's who we are. And we came into existence. Our party was formally created in 1972 after the U.S. military uh, defeat of the Black Revolution of the 60s that killed Malcolm, killed King, uh, that uh, saw more than 30 members of the Black Panther Party in 1968 alone. Uh, who were killed, uh, uh, more who were arrested throughout the United States. Uh, Lumumba was dead and Krumah has been assassinated, murdered, just mayhem uh, ha- impacting our movement and our people everywhere. And the African People's Socialist Party was founded with the stated intent to complete the Black Revolution of the 1960s uh, that uh, had seen uh, Fred Hampton uh, emerge and, 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 and be assassinated along with the other people that I just mentioned. So that's what we came into existence doing. I wanted to give you a chance to respond to some of the allegations in the indictment that was unsealed late last month against this Russian national you mentioned, Alexander Viktorovich Ionov. The, the indictment doesn't mention you or the party explicitly, but there are contextual details that make it clear that you and other members of the party are considered by the indictment to be, quote, unindicted co-conspirators. And there are other you know, groups and individuals identified as unindicted co-conspirators in that indictment. Can you generally respond to the allegations in the indictment? And then do you anticipate at some point being indicted in relation to the case? Well, let me just say that uh, they've characterized, defined us as unindicted co-conspirator number one. And uh, uh, that's me. That's the They've also uh, said the African People's Socialist Party, African People's Solidarity Committee, uh, and then there are uh, uh, three other individuals. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, Alexander Ionov, Ionov uh, I can't speak for him. I can't uh, say uh, what he is uh, in terms of this indictment. And I'm limited to what I can say overall, because the, all of the documents that they stole from us uh, have been uh, are being used to construct and fabricate uh, some uh, kind of charge. This is a political assault on uh, on us under the color of law. So they they have stolen this stuff and they are in the process of fabricating some some tale. But I can say this: that a part of what they are suggesting is that we are some tools of Russia who are being used uh, to embarrass the United States, to charge the United States uh, uh, with things. Uh, against black people uh, as, as, as in that way to 
undermine the United States, uh, and we have been accused of uh, being hired uh, by the Russians in terms of the uh, the elections uh, that we have participated in. We ran candidates in 2017 and 2019 in St. Petersburg, Florida, for mayor and for city council. And so uh, from uh, there, they are suggesting, alleging that somehow these elections are, are something that was sponsored by the Russians. They say the Russians are responsible for work that we've done around the question of uh, genocide, that we, a United Nations petition, uh, 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 charged the United States with genocide against black people, which uh, anybody can tell you that was done in the 1950s first. Uh, people like Paul Robeson, uh, who uh, was also uh, charged with being a Russian puppet and used against the United States, uh, took this demand, this charge uh, to the United Nations uh, about genocide against African people. In 1982, the African People's Socialist Party had our own uh, tribunal in Brooklyn, New York, uh, based on international law, tribunal for re- uh, uh, for reparation, black people in the United States that had international jurists uh, or people who uh, we had identified can function as judges there. And uh, and it was based on international law, and and one of the uh, one of those uh, laws had to do with the United Nations Convention uh, on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. This whole notion, we've been involved in this work, uh, and I have been for more than fifty years, almost sixty years. Uh, and if you look to the Burning Spear, look at all of our materials uh, historically, you will see that our line hasn't changed a bit. Uh, from our founding in 1972, uh, you can look at the 14-point platform that we have uh, uh, up to now. It hasn't changed a bit. If anything else, uh, it's uh, become clearer, more effective, but it's the same line now that it, that we had upon our founding. So it's bogus. The charges are bogus. Uh, and so to, to make these extraordinary claims against uh, the former slaves, of this government uh, is something that really doesn't uh, deserve some kind of uh, legitimacy. And of course, it's a gross, a horrible insult that's based on uh, this colonial mentality and, and worldview that presupposes that somebody would have to tell Black people uh, that we are being oppressed, that we're not smart enough and we don't have enough self-agency to move and complain about our own oppression. It is ridiculous on his face. So I don't know uh, what Ayanov uh, is uh, beyond what uh, has been uh, expressed in terms of a relationship with uh, an organization uh, called the Anti-Globalization Movement of Russia. This notion that he's involved in some kind of intelligence uh, organization in Russia, if it's an intelligence organization, it's like the FBI, it's like the CIA or something, that I think it's secretive. I know nothing about anything like that. And to suggest that somehow I do or we do is extraordinary. And uh, so that's that's our response to that. Finally, I would say this, Chris, that anybody who really wants to know uh, anything about the Uhura movement, the African People's Socialist Party, we're transparent. I invite all of you, I invite your listeners, come to St. Louis. See for yourself. Just, Just challenge and destroy this whole notion of some kind of secretive organization that is uh, working in the dark corners of America to try uh, with some Russian agents to undermine this country. See what we do. See how we've transformed communities in the United States. See what we're doing here in St. Louis. See what we've done in St. Petersburg. Come and visit us. Uh, visit the Uhura Furniture Stores in, in, in Oakland, California, and Philadelphia, and, and let us know uh, if you see a Russian there. And the only other thing I would say is that you won't find an African in the United States with a Russian last name. The last names we have are names of the human beings of the people who enslaved us, and they were not Russians. And so this notion of some kind of uh, uh, ungodly or illegal relationship that we have with Russia is bogus on its face, and they've charged other people with that. They've targeted other people with that in 1969. Uh, the same FBI declared that the Black Panther Party was the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States. We don't see any difference uh, th- with, with what's happening to us. I mean, lastly, you seem very confident and I, I think undeterred in the face of this FBI raid and the indictment that um, names you indirectly. Last weekend, for example, your organization held a conference for folks involved in this work. So clearly the work is ongoing. Is there concern, however, that the FBI raid will produce a chilling effect on your work 
or others who engage in similar anti-racist, anti-imperialist organizing? I suspect that that's part of the intention. But our experience has been is that, uh, for one thing, that we've got a, an incredible spike in the numbers of people who are seeking membership uh, in our party and with the Solidarity Movement. We're getting responses uh, from all kinds of people, some of whom uh, are notable uh, scholars and, and uh, political forces throughout the United States and the people. Our movement is growing and people are now saying that they want to support us precisely because they see what the United States government doing to us uh, as an attempt to stop it. So we are moving forward and the people are treating us uh, with tremendous amount of respect and appreciation. And they recognize that this attack uh, on them. I live in the most impoverished section of St. Louis. And that's what came under assault. And they're not something like the Mar-a-Lago uh, in Florida, where uh, Trump first given some kind of subpoena, and then they came to his house announcing themselves. But uh, in a very impoverished sector, and everybody understands in this community, that was an attack on Black people and the struggle that we are making to improve the conditions of Black people. They see what we do, and they see it. So uh, it's not had the effect that I think that they would have, they, they wished for. That's Omali Yashatella, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party and leader of the International Uhuru Movement. An annual convention for the movement is scheduled for early September at the Uhuru House in St. Louis. Learn more by visiting inpdum.org. That's inpdum.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. You're listening to Monday Morning QB. I'm Sue Goodwin. Two weeks ago today, longtime Filipino activist and former vice presidential candidate Walden Bello was arrested on two counts of libel and cyber libel. Bello was released on bail after spending the night behind bars. The alleged crimes he is charged with stem from a complaint filed back in March. At the time, he was running for vice president. His opponent, who eventually won the race, was Sarah Duterte, daughter of former president and autocrat Rodrigo Duterte. In a Facebook post, Bello pointed out that a member of her campaign staff had been at a party that was raided by narcotics agents, and he hinted that Duterte was protecting a drug user. From the very start, Bello claimed that the charges are nothing more than a political ploy, and he continues to remind us of that now. Just after his release, Bello tweeted this, quote, These people are mistaken if they think they can silence me and suppress my exercise of free speech, close quote. In the most recent Nation magazine, he wrote this, quote, The charge of cyber libel lodged against me is a brazen case of weaponizing the law against critics, close quote. And then there is the timing. In this interview with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! on August 12th, Bellow explains why his arrest on August 8th must be seen in the broader context of a new administration in the Philippines, following the election and inauguration of Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the former U.S.-backed dictator, as the new president of the Philippines, along with Sarah Duterte as his vice president. Yes. Um... Let me just say that um, um, people are really, really quite uh, worried that this is uh, a foretaste of things to come. Um, because just, you know, a few weeks after the new government was inaugurated, uh, there is this effort to intimidate the opposition um, by filing the cyber libel case. And by the way, my uh, uh, my case um, must be seen in the context of thousands of cyber libel cases. I think the the estimates four thousand that have been uh, lodged by politicians against their opponents uh, over the last few years. The most prominent, of course, is the way that the 
uh, father of Sarah Duterte, uh, had f cyber libel cases uh, filed against Maria Ressa, the head of Rappler, who won the Nobel Prize, uh, incidentally. But uh, I guess what people are now saying is that, you know, it's only been a few weeks and they're showing their fangs at this point in time. Uh, and um, and that's true. I think that uh, this was, uh, of course, aimed at me, but the implications are much larger. And I am being made uh, an object lesson uh, of what can happen if somebody dares to criticize yeah. uh, a person in high office, uh, somebody in high office in this administration. So. Uh, I, I think, um, Amy, this is the reason why this has sparked so much domestic outrage, as well as international outrage, because, you know, people, uh, you know, really feel, you know, that this weaponization of the law, like the cyber libel, uh, is something that has uh, become uh, the modus operandi of these heads of government and officials that really do not like criticism. That is Walden Bellow speaking with Amy Goodman on August 12th about his arrest on August 8th. To learn more about this story and why the Filipino government would have such an interest in silencing Walden Bellow, we spoke with John Cavana, Senior Advisor at the Institute for Policy Studies, and here is how he describes his colleague of many years. Okay, so Walden Bellow is one of the great activists of our time. He's, a, he's an incredible Filipino activist, but he's a global activist as well. He is one of the people who would be best known in the circles of the people who took on the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and the World Trade Organization. Walden was always at the front lines of those fights. Um, but he has a he has a slightly different profile than most great activists in that he is also a great scholar and he was an elected official. He was a member of Congress for seven years. But even with all of that to his credit, John Cavana says that what really sets Walden Bellow apart is his flair for the dramatic, something he picked up from his parents who were both in the theater. He loves to be out on the streets uh, in street theater. And I will say one of my favorite days with Walden was uh, he was fighting the Marcos dictatorship, which was one of the worst dictatorships in the world. It both plundered the Philippines. This is Ferdinand Marcos, 60s, 1960s, 1970s. And once an opposition grew, a lot of it of young student leaders like Walden, uh, he imprisoned thousands, he tortured thousands, uh, and he killed quite a few. So horrible dictatorship. Walden is a student leader in the Philippines, but is forced into exile from this horrible dictatorship. He gets to the U.S., he gets political asylum, and he begins to organize the both Filipino community in the U.S., but, but allies, people like, like myself and others at the Institute for Policy Studies and, and allied groups. And um, at the height of the fight against Marcos, Walden realizes that a key support for this dictatorship is money coming from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. It's part of what's keeping him afloat. So he turns his attention to those two institutions. He organizes a big protest out in front of the International Monetary Fund. He comes dressed as Kermit the Frog, but he's got a sign around his neck that says Ferdy the Frog. And another activist, Chirito Planas, comes as Miss Piggy. She's Amelda, uh, Marcos's famous uh, wife, who was part of the kleptocracy. And she's Amelda the Piggy. And they, do, they act out this fantastic uh, scene in front of the IMF of them robbing the, the riches and treasures of the Philippines. And at the end, he culminates it by hopping into the IMF in his frog suit and demanding a meeting with the leader of the IMF because he is the president of the Philippines, Ferdy the Frog. And he let the press know in advance they were there. It got a great deal of attention and it helped delegitimate this horrible dictator. That was 40 years ago. The older Marcos was deposed in 1986. So with the dictator's son now in power, 
with Sarah Duterte by his side, it shouldn't come as any surprise that they are coming after Walden Bellow. Walden is the first one to be accused of this in the new administration, and it is because of his prominence, also the fact that he is a a global figure. They want to silence him, and boy, did they pick the wrong guy to try to silence, because this is a man who knows no fear. He speaks truth to power, and and if and already he has used these charges and his and his arrest uh, last week and and being put in jail overnight as a platform to continue speaking out against the crimes of the Marcos and Duterte families. So this is a drama where we're here at the beginning of a new phase of of the fight for democracy in this country in the Philippines, and uh, this will be an epic battle because it's these two very powerful families against this incredibly articulate and fearless activist, scholar, elected official. As for the crime of cyber libel, the term is used when someone has posted or emailed something that is untrue and damaging about someone else on the Internet. The Philippines is one of the few countries in the world where libel is criminalized, and a conviction of cyber libel can lead to six years in prison. And given the current political climate around the world, John Cavanaugh says that should concern all of us. In the past decade, there has been the growth of authoritarian governments in several parts of the world. We in the U.S. experienced it for four years under Trump. And once you allow an authoritarian leader to come into power, either through an election, as is this case, or because they decree themselves the leaders, they will, they are being advised, and there is a global network of right-wing. Steve Bannon spends part of his time pulling together and advising dictators around the world. There's a playbook, and one of the playbooks is silence your opposition. So the Philippines is one of the countries that has further criminalized libel, cyber libel, and it is very important for us to fight against these laws everywhere. So the number one demand of Walden right now is get rid of this law. Philippine Congress, get rid of this law. They're not going to because right now the vast majority of senators in that country are with um, the new Marcos and Duterte regime. But you have to start somewhere, (laughs) and this is the moment to start. I think he also feels, and I think he's right, that it will embolden people to both fight against this regime and to speak out against this draconian law by watching somebody fearlessly stand up to it and tell the truth. So that's that's what he's dedicating this next period of his life to, and, and all power to him. As for the criminal charges, Walden Bellow is scheduled to be arraigned on September 8th in the city of Davao. In the meantime, he has asked the city court to defer his arraignment and other proceedings until the Department of Justice can review his petition to appeal the case. But even if that effort fails and Bellow is convicted, John Cavana says that hardly means the fight is over. He takes the long view. Um, he's going to fight this as hard as he can. He's going to try to stay out of jail. If he ends up in jail, he's going to fight it from jail because he knows in the end that um, his experience is that justice can prevail with the right strategies. And uh, that's Walden Bellow and all power to him. And not just the Philippines, but the world is much richer because of him and people like him. uh, And they should inspire us and they should inspire us in this very difficult moment. We're fighting for, for the life of our democracy here in the United States. We've got a wonderful ally across the ocean there on the other side of the world in Walden Bellow. That was John Cavana, senior advisor at the Institute for Policy Studies, speaking to the recent arrest of Filipino activist Walden Bellow. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
Hi, this is Tom Cole, host of G-Strings, here on WPFW every Sunday morning, interrupting your favorite program to encourage you to support the station that brings it to you. WPFW puts hundreds of community voices on the air every week, presenting news, information, and music. All kinds of music you won't hear anyplace else on the FM dial in the nation's capital. From classic mambo to Caribbean soca to old-school R&B to jazz. If you appreciate that kind of diverse programming, please help keep it on the air. Take just a couple of moments to go to WPFWDC dot org forward slash donate that's wpfwdc dot org forward slash donate as a second generation washingtonian i'm proud to be part of wpfw building a better world one broadcast at a time Earlier this month, a marker was placed along the Louisiana Civil Rights Trail, recognizing the Robert Bob Hicks House on a street by the same name in Bogalusa. The house operated as the epicenter of the civil rights movement in Bogalusa, hosting regular meetings for the local chapters of the Congress of Racial Equality, Deacons for Defense and Justice, and other organizations. In August 1967, Bob Hicks helped lead a dangerous march from Bogalusa to state capital Baton Rouge to protest violence against black people. As is often the case, WPFW has a special connection to this story. Bob Hicks's son, Chuck Hicks, is co-host of WPFW's To Heal DC, broadcast at 10 a.m. on Mondays just before this program. Chuck and his family gathered over 10 years ago for an oral history interview with the Library of Congress, discussing what it meant to grow up in a house so intimately involved in the civil rights movement. About halfway through the over two-and-a-half-hour interview, Chuck describes one emotion that was pervasive in that era, one that was ultimately overcome. You know, I guess one of the things about fear, uh, and I guess there was two or three types of fear that existed in our community. And of course, one fear was that something was going to happen to you physically. I think another kind of fear was uh, just psychological. And I think to a degree, uh, in stages, that was more challenging and emotionally draining than, any, than the physical fear. Certainly in a march, uh, I was fearful when I marched it, and I didn't march as much as my brothers and sisters because I was in school uh, at Southern, and that's another piece that we'll talk about. But uh, there's always the fear that they're gonna, uh, you gonna get, they're gonna run out and hit you, and nobody likes pain. And I, even when I was a little boy and had to get, well, as children, when you got a whipping, you didn't want it because it hurt, and so pain hurts. But I think the psychological fear of having to go emotionally through this every day, and particularly for us as a family uh, to begin with, uh, was just an enormous piece of stress uh, that we never knew uh, when my dad went to work if he was going to come back. Uh, and there was a point that they drove him to, to work every day to the box factory. But he had to walk maybe 20 feet. They could only take him so far. Then he had to get out of the car and walk to the mill. Now, when he got inside the mill, he was well protected because there were black men there. And they were going to protect him. So the psychological fear of wondering, and we knew they wanted to kill him. They had built a coffin at one point and put it on Columbia Road, saying that they were going to kill him. Yeah, and here lies Robert Hicks. And so the psychological fear of never knowing if this is the day that is not going to come home. Uh, or this is the day uh, when he goes in, but he won't come out. Whether or not he get in. And to have to carry that, that mental stress and anguish as a family uh, for years uh, is an enormous kind of emotional stress. 
And I think that stress did not only exist uh, just with the, I mean, it existed with us because we were a family. And as a family, we had always been a family. And sometimes it, maybe we can talk a little bit about what family life was like before the moving and after the moving. But also uh, the fear that uh, when Mr. Y, uh, or Ricky, uh, anybody went someplace that was involved in the movement, you didn't know if they were going to make it. Or when they got arrested, you didn't know what was going to happen to them. The fear that when they took those young black girls in the jail, whether or not they were going to molest them, whether or not they were going to rape them. I mean, all those kinds of psychological fears. And for those people who were marching and things, you never knew what was going to happen. And I think emotionally, that was, that was a piece uh, of the movement that has played an enormous toll on so many people in the movement, not only in Bogolosa, but throughout the country. And it's a piece that really has never been explored to talk about the psychological effects of the movement uh, on individuals in it. So I, I think that that was a piece of fear. There was fear of policemen. There was a fear of, of, the, of the, the Klan and, and the whites attacking you. But there was also the psychological fear of what you went through every day. And that's our show for today. Support Monday Morning QB by visiting WPFWDC.org and becoming a monthly sustainer. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest gracefully, Eskia. And again, please visit WPFWDC.org slash donate and become a sustainer of this great radio station. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington. Thank you.